Where is it? Maybe we better send uh, Have you sent a notice that we're meeting it here? Oh, they already know. They were here last week. So um, uh, Terry was here last week, and Justin Dan was here last week, and George and Sheila were here last week. So there must be something going on that maybe Jet maybe. We saw Jess this morning. Did Jess come in for you? She came over to Blue Whale also. So maybe they had a rest morning when she got home. Are we doing a con uh, congregation pick, Jared? Yeah. Okay. Five, six, nine. Uh, put, that, put that in the service papers. We'll <laughs> Don't expect me to remember it in five yeah. minutes. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> All right. I already forgot it. Five, six, nine, is that what you said? Oh, absolutely. Lydia, Lydia, and then on circle. Hannah, you should move too. 
Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Um, not many announcements. Uh, we were supposed to have communion today, but nobody prepared. So we'll reschedule that and get better as we try to get our uh, things going. However, we're going to have to think about communion too because of the way we prepare and do that service. So, Good news about the uh, guidelines on singing. That the things we talked about last week were removed from the, uh, the national standards from the CDC. Uh, so they've been stricken, so I think we'll just follow along with that, too. So if you want to sing, go ahead and sing. I would recommend at that point that unless you've tried to sing with a face mask on, it's kind of difficult. <laughs> We've done it, uh, but it's up to you uh, if you want to leave that on or not. Okay, um, our scripture for meditation this morning is Hebrews 11, 1 through 14. And I don't have a page number in the Bibles, uh, in the pews, so... If somebody gets there using a pew Bible, that'd be great to call it out. Hebrews 11, the first 14 verses. Anyone got a page number? 1874 for those still looking for it. 1874 in the pew Bible. <laughs> Probably better than this one.
Let's open our service with a word of prayer. Uh, Dale, would you mind leading us in prayer? You can stand, please. Please remain standing for our first hymn. First hymn this morning is in the brown hymnal. It's for uh, number 279 in the brown. <clears throat> 279. This morning, actually over the weekend, the CDC lifted the guidelines on singing. So if you feel comfortable singing in a mask, that's fine. And if you feel comfortable taking your mask off and singing, that's fine too.
seated and I'm sorry Ed um, but well no um as I say I'm sorry Ed Ken right before right before service started Ken beat you <clears throat> he shouted out um, right about 1029 <laughs> he, he wanted um number 569 in the brown five what what did you want to hear Ed which one was it two seven eight but uh, Rick, if you want to do an extra one, <laughs> 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 what do you want to do? No, no, we'll, we'll do this now. We'll do what now? Battle, battle him. Five, six, nine. Five, six, nine. Battle him. Here's hoping I don't. <laughs> nope, that's all right. Okay.
Thank you. You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that, they, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. May God bless the reading of his word. Number 43 in the brown.
Good morning, everybody. I'm glad we can meet together. Aren't you glad about that? After so many weeks, wow. Well, our text this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've been following the series online on the living faith, which is where we're at. <clears throat> Our last study, we dealt with and confronted head on the notion that how we feel about a given thing is what is to determine our course of action. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That gives feelings too much power in our lives. And what do we know about feelings? Well, feelings is the new synonym for believe. How do you feel? Well, what do you feel about this? That's, we hear that all the time. But there's no rational connection to feelings. They're just emotions which arise based on circumstances. So as circumstances change, so do our feelings. We go up and down. So there's great instability and lack of steadfastness if you live your life according to feelings. Today I feel somewhat well. Yesterday I felt somewhat sick. So if I base my behavior and my faith on my feelings, I'm going to go like this. So are you. But there are churches, there are denominations, that's, that's their whole thing is, well, how do you feel today? And the services, their worship services, are all about whipping up the feelings you say, what do your church stand for? What, what's the doctrine? What's the teaching? Oh, well, we, we just love everybody. We just want to love Jesus. Well, we all want to love Jesus if we know Christ as Savior, right? But I want to know about him, and I want to become more like him. That ought to be our goal. Feelings go with the circumstances and therefore there is a great instability and there is a great lack of steadfastness if you live your life according to how you feel tomorrow's monday morning some of you get up real early five six o'clock in the morning you feel like going to work don't don't you go to work yeah if, you have, if you're still in the workforce. Because you know if you don't go to work, you're not going to get that paycheck that's going to pay for your mortgage and your food and everything else that you want to do in terms of life. The account of Isaac and Rebekah brought before us a couple who were ruled by their feelings instead of by the word of God. God had made his will clear as to who of their twin sons would become the family head when Isaac was gone. And God's choice was Jacob. But Esau, or by Isaac rather, wanted Esau 
because he thought Esau was a better he was a better leader because he was what I would call a man's man. You know what I mean by a man's man? A hunter, a warrior. Kind of would take on a grizzly bear with a popsicle stick. That's the kind of guy Esau was. Whereas Jacob was more hmm, domestic in his pursuits. Could I say it that way? Be kind. Rebecca, the mom, felt that God was a little slow in keeping his promise to Jacob, so she took matters into her own hands. You remember how she did that with the fake arms and the so forth? She fell right into the devil's lie that God needs your help. Oh, God needs your help, Rebecca, in order to pull this off. No, God doesn't need your help. God wants us to be faithful and obedient to his word. That's what God wants of us. Well, the treachery of Rebekah and Jacob worked. It did, work. it did work. But my, what a terrible price. What a terrible price. Jacob had to flee for his life from his infuriated brother Esau. And Rebekah planned all along that Jacob would return when Esau kind of cooled down because Esau was hot and mad that he had lost the birthright. But you know what? She died before Jacob ever made it back home. She died. And Isaac lost Esau. How did he lose Esau? He lost him to immoral and pagan women whom he married just to spite his father. Scripture says that. He knew what just great his father for him to marry pagan women. So he did it. He did it. And we close by looking at three traits of feelings. Feelings are devoid of godly directives. They can be. And when that is so, they are fickle. That is to say, they're unreliable. How you feel today, you're not necessarily going to feel that way tomorrow. Number two, feelings are often foul. That is, they arise from sinful pride and a rebellion to God's truth. How do you feel about this? God's not asking us how we feel about things. He's telling us to obey. He's not bringing us into the discussion and say, well, you know, if you feel like obeying, okay. No, he wants us to obey. Number three, feelings is not faith. Because in being ruled by it, we disobey God's clear word. How do you feel? Well, do what, what, what you feel is best. No, obey. Obey. I don't feel like obeying. Well, obey anyway. And you'll be blessed as a result of it. Today, I want to talk to you about the faith that saves the faith that saves which kind of implies there might be a faith that doesn't save yes and we're going to talk about that first so as we come to our study let's ask the lord to be with us holy father send your word into our hearts by reason of the holy spirit's power we are living in a feely touchy world 
everybody wants to do what they do, believe what they believe based on their feelings. So if they don't feel like doing something, they don't. They don't feel like something is true, they don't believe it. And on and on it goes. But you have called us to use our minds, use our brains to believe what you have told us in your word because the scripture says your word is truth. So we're to be people of truth. And you're truth. Jesus, oh Lord, you said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. If we bypass you, if we bypass the truth, we aren't going to make it. We'll never see your face in joy, only in judgment. Please deliver us from ourselves, we pray. May you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about the faith that saves. But in order to do that, I want to talk firstly about the faith that doesn't save. There is such a thing as faith that doesn't save. You know, sometimes it's good to look at the negative of things before you switch over and look at the positive of things. So that's the way I want to do this morning. And I would say, firstly, the faith that believes in God, which does not save, is found everywhere. Now that may be a shock to some. How many times have you listened to people claim salvation because they say, well, I believe in God. It's almost a universal response when you try to give people the gospel. People believe they're saved from their sin because they believe in God. Well, what we are looking for here is some evidence that this belief changes people from being God's enemies, which the Bible affirms to be true about all sinners, Romans 5 verse 10 if you want the verse, and results in them becoming the friend of God. So an enemy of God to become a friend of God. There ought to be some evidence of having moved intellectually and spiritually from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from that of being ignorant in God matters to being enlightened in God matters. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. For he, referring to God, for God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the sunny loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. And Peter agrees. Peter words it this way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2 Verse 9. These are all verses about a transition that takes place, right? These references to darkness and light have to do with a moral transformation as indicated in our text, verse 14. As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Okay. 
For it is written, be holy because I am holy. But I want you to notice as well the intellectual reformation. From evil desires and ignorance to a holy thought life. The point being made here is that there are individuals who believe in God by their own confession but they have neither a moral change nor an intellectual enlightenment of the things of God. I think the demons are a good example of this. Bear with me now. Think about this. On a number of occasions, these evil spirits that we find in the scriptures demonstrated that, yeah, they believed in God. They did. Luke 4, verse 33 and following. We read in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. And he cried out at the top of, of, of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and they said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and and they come out. Luke 4. Verse 33 and following. And verse 41 adds, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Four chapters later, Luke chapter 8, verse 27 and following. It records, Luke records, another account. He says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he lived in the tombs. You know, like the caves that you would find in Palestine area. By the way, no shame, you see, he's running around naked. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, And though he was chained hand and foot under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Wow. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. 
A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave them permission. Luke 8, verse 27 and following. Here is Christ having power over the demonic world. They're begging him not to send them into the abyss prematurely. So what we have here in these accounts is demon recognition of who Jesus was. Now, not in his earthly manifestation, but in his pre-existent glory, which every demon would be privy to. Think about that. Not then simply Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, Son of the Most High God. That's what they say. Or again, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Oh, and yet again, a third time. They knew he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. That's what the word Christ means, the Anointed One of God. In short, what we have here is demonic creatures who knew Jesus in another realm who knew his true identity as the Son of God, as one who had the power to condemn them, to torture there and then, and who had to be silenced by Jesus for what they knew. And yet, and yet, here's my point, this belief in Jesus, even this correct understanding of his identity, his power, his glory, never altered their relationship to Jesus. Think about this. All this truth they knew about Jesus. But their belief didn't change them. James used this to define faith. In the book of James, this is what we read. James says, you believe that there's one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, faith without deeds is useless. James 2, verse 19 and 20. The point James is making is that the demons have a faith in God as good as or better than the average Joe on the street. They even believe that God is one and not many. They believe judgment is coming for their evil activities. They shudder to think about it. But, and here's the point, their faith has effected no moral or intellectual change in their lives. Their deeds were and are just as evil and just as defiant towards God as any atheist who boasts of not believing in God. So my point is there there is a faith. There is a belief in God that does not save. We need to take that to heart. Oh, I believe in God, people say. Is that enough? 
I believe in God. It's not a saving faith. Why is it not a saving faith? Because there's no commitment to God and to his law. So there is a faith in God that does not save. And the United States of America is full of people like that. Because of our Christian heritage. Because of the Puritans. We were taught well. We started well. We're not doing well now. Secondly, religious faith does not save. Firstly, uh, there's a belief in God that does not save. And secondly, there is a religious faith that does not save. So what do you mean by that? Well, think of all the religions that are in the world. Everything from Buddhism to Hinduism to Islam to Catholicism to Mormonism to Protestant denominationalism. There are more isms than you could thoroughly study in a lifetime. Sad to say. They all claim to be on the pathway to glory. They all claim faith in God. They all claim exclusive spiritual enlightenment that a competing religion does not have. They all claim to know God. They all claim to have the favor of God. And they all claim that their religion is the way of salvation. There's something else they all have. And it's this. It's contradictory teaching. In other words, they cannot all be right because the way of salvation in their religion is opposite to the way of salvation in another religion. Buddhism, what about Buddhism? Well, salvation is found in self-awareness and enlightenment. That's how you get saved. Hinduism. Hinduism teaches that each person is to develop his or her Self-ethics in relationship to their own caste, C-A-S-T-E, their own station in life. So reincarnation is very important as you atone for the bad karma of your life and you eventually come back and you can atone for some more of the bad karma and then you die and you come back again. That's what reincarnation is all about. It's atoning, atoning, atoning for your waywardness in the previous life and the idea is that as you keep atoning and atoning you become absorbed into the divine nature you become God Muslims it's a monotheistic religion but the God of Islam is holy other what do they mean by that It's not one who walks with and talks with men. Ever reeling, revealing, because the scriptures of Christianity, they say, are corrupt. So you can't trust the Christian Bible. God is just always revealing himself. And so salvation is to submit to the will of God as expressed in the Koran. What does the Quran teach? Well, it's a book of self-works. 
you've ever read it. Abstaining from certain foods, certain drink, doing certain religious exercises, making a certain trip to a holy city, praying in a certain place, praying towards the city of Mecca, and so on. Protestant denominationalism isn't any much better. Where baptism is essential in salvation. We have a whole bunch of Protestants that put too much emphasis, for example, on baptism. They say it's essential to salvation. You got that from the Roman Catholics. Legalistic abstinence of alcoholic beverages. That's necessary to salvation. Good works is what Jesus was all about, so we must be engaged in similar activities. God loves everybody. Boy, don't we hear that. And that's supposed to be part of our evangelistic message in the gospel. We could argue the merit and demerit of these religions till the cows come home and still be no closer in understanding God's salvation. Suffice it to say that Jesus, in his teaching, did not even allow for the possibility that the Jewish faith as a religion was the pathway to salvation. By the time Jesus made his appearance, the Jewish religion had been established for centuries. For centuries. And while there were corruptions by men, as usually happens, the religion of Jewishism remained intact and the Jews considered themselves to be the people of God over against the Gentiles or the non-Jews. So you had that divide. You had that divide. Luke records a true account. Let's see Luke 13 in the life of Christ. It says there, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So that means he killed them. And Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered in that way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or what about those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What a statement. You too will all perish. Luke 13, first five verses. Now these two calamities that Jesus references, though they are very real, they're not recorded for us in the historical records other than this passage in Luke. The Jews believe that calamities of this sort were punishments from God for extremely sinful conduct. You remember the account in John 9 about the man who was born blind? What was the disciples thinking concerning him? 
Well, let me read it for you. The disciples now, Jesus' own disciples, here's what they said. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See how they're thinking? For them, that was just two alternatives. Well, it had to be that either the man himself or his parents were great sinners. Else he would not have been born blind. The blindness they're looking at as God's punishment. Jesus had them set, set them straight, didn't he? It wasn't either or of those two alternatives. He was born blind. He's in his 40s now. For what purpose? Jesus tells us for the purpose of me showing up so I could restore his sight. Can you believe this? Born blind, lived his whole life into adult, blind, so that Jesus would come along someday and restore his sight. You think you have it tough. But the disciples looked at, it's either or. Maybe his parents were sinners, or he's a great sinner. And so God was punishing him. The same thought process was apparent in these two accounts in Luke 13. The terrible slaughter by Pilate of certain worshiping Galileans and the Tower of Siloam falling on 18 inhabitants of Jerusalem. The people thought, wow, God's anger burned against these people for some terrible and horrific sin. Yet they, the people, they felt safe. They felt secure from any such judgment. Presumably because there was no horrific sin in their lives. But Jesus said to them, I tell you no. But unless you repent. Greek here is, Unless you too all will perish. Emphasis on the word all. Sharing in the same fate as the others reference in the story. How revolutionary this warning was. Rabbi, you mean that we Israelites, the chosen people of God, who reside in the holy city and worship the true God of heaven with offerings and sacrifices, you mean that we are in jeopardy of like judgment unless we repent? Beloved, their religion was not going to save them. Loyalty to their religion, observance of the animal sacrifices prescribed by God in their religion, the purification, washings, the tithe they gave to God, their references to the law, the Ten Commandments. None of this was going to spare them the judgment of God. And in context, Jesus talked about an unproductive fig tree that never bore any fruit. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil, he said. No righteousness in these people. Just religiosity in these people. Even if your religion can be traced to biblical foundations, 
religious faith cannot and does not save. So what do we have? We have firstly a faith in God that doesn't save. And secondly a faith in religious activities that doesn't save. Wow, we're just narrowing in here. Number three, faith in orthodox doctrine does not save. See, what do you mean by that? Well, some think that believing in the truths of Christianity is what saves. Heretics distort the truth with their lies. Satan interjects his lies into the doctrinal fabric of the church, but if you remain orthodox, literally true to the teaching that's right, that's correct, that's what it means to be orthodox, then you will be saved. Got to have the right teaching. These are all those people who pride themselves on being biblically correct. Ooh, now we're getting to hit home here. Let me say there's nothing wrong with wanting to be biblically correct. I want to be biblically correct. What the Bible teaches is God's word on life, and it is our desire to align ourselves with God and not with human opinion. But we can become people whose love for truth is intellectual at best because we take pride in being right. But that truth to which we assent never seems to touch us experientially. It doesn't seem to change us by its implications. It becomes an exercise in academica with no noticeable practical outcome. A fig tree with no fruit, just sucking the nutrients from the soil. Leaves, but no fruit. No produce. We know what we know. What we know is the truth. We believe it is truth because God says so in his word. No problem there. But our faith is in our knowledge, not in Christ. Oh, now we're in trouble. In other words, we're proud to be on the right side of God reverencing what he has declared but not changed by the truth one whit. Oh, now we're in trouble. So, oh, well, where do you see people like that? Well, do you know that the Pharisees of Jesus' day were the epitome of this kind of believer? They were. Don't think that the Pharisees were not believers. They were believers. They were the orthodox teachers of God's law in the day in which Jesus lived. They were not heretics. As Calvinists, we would likely dot our I's and cross T's with the Pharisees. Say, oh, no, that can't be. Well, see if you agree. Here's seven things that the Pharisees believed and taught. Number one, they believed that the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. First five books of the Bible were written by Moses. They believed that these were inspired by God. 
So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis? You mean that business about the creation? You mean that business about a worldwide flood? Pharisees believed that, taught that. Number two, they believe that man has a will which he exercises in life's choices, but that God is sovereign, yet neither teaching cancels out the other. Man is responsible. God is in control. Does that sound like anybody you know? Hmm. Sounds like a Calvinist. Number three, they believed in both angels and demons. Pharisees. They believed in supernatural beings. Number four, they taught that there is a future afterlife when a person dies. You don't just die and that's the end of you. Number five, they believe the soul to be immortal and subject to either reward or judgment after death. You're either going to be glorified or you're going to be judged. Number six, they were champions of human equality. And number seven, they emphasized morality over theology. They wanted to see practical, godly living in a person's life. Not just being theologically correct. Wow. Pretty good list, don't you think? Their teaching was so solid that Jesus told his disciples, let me read it for you. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat so You must obey them and do everything they tell you. Matthew 23, verse 2. Can you believe that? Jesus, you you sure you got this right? You want us to obey the teaching of the Pharisees and whatever they tell us. Do we have this correct? Is that what you're telling us? He's actually affirming those teachings of Moses that the Pharisees taught. Now, not the oral traditions that they added later on, but the things that are written in the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What's the problem? Oh, wow. What's the problem with the Pharisees? They sound like pretty good guys. Well, Jesus went on to tell us what the problem was. Here it is. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So, you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But, uh uh-oh, here's the shoe that's going to drop. But, do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. 
What's Jesus saying? The teaching is great. The application is terrible. They taught the truth of God to other people. They didn't practice it themselves. Not good. And in that same chapter, chapter 23 of Matthew, we find scalding renunciation by Jesus on the Pharisees. Not because of their lack of orthodoxy, but because they taught one thing and lived another way. And he calls them hypocrites. That's what a hypocrite is. Pretty sad when your teaching doesn't affect your own life. In general, Jesus said, Matthew 23, verse 4 and 5. Now, in general, here, here's the summation. I, I could put it that way. Of the Pharisees. Jesus is speaking. They tie up heavy loads. And put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do. I'm still reading scripture. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. The tassels on their garments long. Matthew 23 verse 4 and 5. Phylacteries were, um, they were like little leather headbands, pouches. You've probably seen pictures of Jewish rabbis with the phylacteries. They wore them on their forehead. And in these little pouches, they would put segments of scripture that they had written down on parchment. You see how carnal the thinking was? I'm going to put the word of God in my mind. I'll tie it to my head. That's the way they thought. Jesus became even more specific. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to do so. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you become, he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you. Ooh, ooh. Can you see the flame? Can you see the scalding condemnation here? Matthew 23, verse 13 and following. And in verse 23, Jesus went on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, old mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, faithfulness, without neglecting the former, the tithing. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow the camel. <laughs> Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Matthew 23, verse 23 and following. All of these indictments boil down to this, brethren. People can be orthodox. They can be orthodox in their faith. They can remain 
true to the scriptures in terms of what they say they believe, and yet be corrupt in heart and life and behavior. It's all for show. The truth they teach others never changes them. Faith for them is an intellectual exercise. It's a mind game, an agreement in will only without moral change. There are many people like this today. Sad to say. They're Calvinists in theology. They're reprobate in practice. They're true to the text of scripture. They're untrue to Jesus, the author of the text. They're followers of what the Bible teaches, but not with any view of the Spirit changing them in thought, word, or deed. The goal of these people is to be right, not holy. Want to be right. Want to be correct. Not humble. I want to be on the side of truth. But not true inside. I fully believe this. There will be orthodox believers in hell. Whose teachings were true. But whose practices were corrupt. That scares me. Jesus put it this way. (laughs) You want it from the words of Christ? Here it is. Not everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Didn't we do those things? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Evil doers. Matthew 7, 21 What is Jesus saying? He is saying their teaching was right, their behavior was corrupt. That's a faith that does not save. It's a faith that does not save. I don't think the world knows about this faith. They're living it but they don't know about it. They think because they have faith in God that they're they're saved. I'm saved. I believe in God. I've had many conversations with many people about salvation and this is always what they throw up to me. Well, I believe in God. James says, yeah, well, (laughs) the demons believe in God too, (laughs) but they're still demons. They're still little devils. 
Well, if that's the faith that doesn't save, what's the faith that does save? Let me suggest some things. The faith that repents of sin, that saves. What's repentance? Why is it necessary? Well, it's not being sorry or feeling sorrowful about sin. That's not what repentance is. Just as we learned the other week that the world has substituted feelings for faith, so it has substituted being sorry for repentance. It's called an apology. We all do this. We say something mean-spirited to another person. No sooner than the words leave our mouths, we recognize that such was ill-advised. And then we say, oh, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And we offer our apology with a disclaimer, I didn't mean to say that. But we did say it, very likely we did mean it. (laughs) We just realize how that there might be repercussions for our words that may be unpleasant for us. Uh, People won't like us if we've talked like that. So we kind of backtrack, oh, I'm I'm sorry. While being sorry for our sin may be part of the feelings we experience when repentance occurs, repentance is much more than just being sorry. Repentance has to do with change in behavior. Repentance has to do with reversals. We're heading down the pathway of wickedness and suddenly we halt in our tracks and we do an about face. And we begin to walk on the path of righteousness. And may I say that no one does this apart from the empowerment of God. But again, no one does this in truth without hatred of their sin and a new love for God and his holiness. I think David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba is a classic example. So what are you talking about? Well, let, let me explain. God's law states, you shall not commit adultery, right? Exodus 20, it's part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus' words must be added to that in our day. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, verse 28. So that's what really it is about. And you remember that this is where David's adultery began, right? I mean, he was watching naked Bathsheba from his balcony, and she took a bath on her balcony, and he lusted after her, and that had started the whole thing. After his sin was exposed by Nathan the prophet, David confessed, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, verses 2 and 5. By his own omission. David was confessing his sin of adultery to God. And we might think, oh, this is, this is wonderful. Wow, this is wonderful. His confession proves his repentance. Wrong. Wrong. Confession is not repentance. 
Now, it may accompany repentance because no one who repents until unless he or she can be transparent like David. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. But you know, there are people who can confess their sins at the drop of a hat. Remorse sets in and they can see that they have done something very evil against a fellow human being and they readily admit it. And the world even says, well, you know, confession is good for the soul. We didn't invent that expression. That's from the world. What they mean is, get it off your chest and you will feel better. People want a catharsis. They want a cleansing of conscience without repentance. They expect God to forgive because they confess. Yet I say that confession, the confession was not the proof of David's repentance. Of the sin of adultery. Yes, he made his confession, but that is not proof of his repentance. Well, what was? Well, let me read it for you. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may warm up. Then they searched throughout the kingdom of Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But, here it is, the king had no intimate relationship with her. 1 Kings 1, verses 1 through 4. David's servants, thinking only of the king and not of God, came up with a very carnal solution to David's hypothermia. Get a beautiful woman to go to bed with him, And his heated passions will warm him up physically. Yet we read, but the king had no intimate relationship with her. Brethren, that is repentance. That is repentance. David chose rather to suffer the discomfort of body chills and to repeat what had happened than to repeat what had happened with Bathsheba. This is not to say that David did not repent until the end of his life. No, certainly he repented as early as Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is another one. These are two psalms you can read in in your Bible in which he confesses his sin. He was assured of God's forgiveness. But it is to say that the proof of his repentance was the change in his behavior. A change that went against the contemporary wisdom of his day and the approval of his fellow Israelites.
He wasn't going to become a fornicator in order to become warm. He's not going to repeat the sin that he had done with Bathsheba. Secondly, faith in Christ alone is the faith that saves. By faith, we do not mean belief that Christ exists. We don't believe that it's faith that he was a good man, though he was, or that he was a prophet of God, and yes, he was that too, or that he was the greatest teacher of ethics the world has ever seen, yes, he was that, or that he was the founder of a new religion, yes, he did that too. No, by faith in Christ, we mean a trusting faith, a faith that leans on him and only him for the cleansing of sin, the payment for sin, the merit to eternal, eternal to inherit eternal life with God in heaven. It's Jesus, all Jesus, all Jesus. That's whom I'm trusting. Brethren, we're not to trust in anything else. I could say as strongly as I can. We're not to trust our repentance, not in our sorrow, not our admission of guilt, not in any system of doctrine, not in any religious duties, not in church attendance, not in our financial support of the church, not in spiritual exercises like prayer and study of the Bible. Again, 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 people can do all of these things, and they have, and yet they perish because they trusted in themselves. They thought being good and doing good was good enough. Christ never died for people who were good enough. What a waste of his life. You want it from Jesus' words? Here it is. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, says Jesus, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5, verse 31, 32. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sins. And where I go, you cannot come, he continued. You are below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. And if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 8, verse 21 and following. Well, who did Jesus claim to be? We don't have to guess. He tells us, John 10. What about the one whom the Father has sent apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am the Son of God? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, then though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. It's kind of like Father, like Son. And if I do only what God can do, then it proves that I am God's son. Wow. 
May I put it this way, Jesus will accept no other affirmation about him from you than this. If you do not trust him as God, the only savior of sinners, you will die in your sins. Peter said it this way, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. One way, not many. One mediator to plead your case before God. Jesus, the advocate, the judge, the jury. He's all three wrapped up into one. And that's why Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Of Christ. That each one may receive his due from him for things which he has done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. May none of us here trust in the filthy rags of our own righteousness. For judgment day, may we all be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus alone. And we shall be by faith. By faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your truth, for the truth of the gospel. It's very humbling. Men don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear that there's nothing meritorious in our life and behavior to commend us to God. We want to think, I'm okay. God will love me because I'm a good person. I never murdered anybody. I don't steal. And we go down our little checklist. Let us realize that if we were just guilty of one sin, it would be enough to condemn us. Have we ever told one lie? Have we lived out one lie? Have we ever taken something that didn't belong to us? Have we ever blasphemed the name of God by using his name as a curse word? We're so easy on ourselves. But I pray that you will show us how desperately wicked we are and how we need the Savior and his blood to cleanse us and cover us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not simply glossing over our sin, but for actually paying for our sin in your own body on the tree. You're not excusing us. You paid our debt. And on the merit of your righteousness, we are declared to be righteous if we trust you. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you for such great love for us. This was your plan all along from eternity past. You had our names, the scripture says, written in the Lamb's book of life before you ever came to earth. We were written in the scroll. 
That means we were saved on purpose, not accidentally, not casually, but determined by God from all of eternity that we should be a part of the family of God. What can we say about that? Nothing more than thank you, and we praise your name for it. How gracious and kind and loving you have been to us. Thank you, dear Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Our closing hymn is found in the Brown Hymnal. <clears throat> Number four hundred ten. Great hymn, it directs our faith where it must be, right? First phrase, my faith looks up to thee. Not what I do, not what I believe, not what I can say of myself, not my actions. No, my faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. Say it another way, in another hymn, Jesus paid it all. Amen. 410.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your great redemption. You are going to lift us up to glory, our ransomed soul. You paid it all. Grant us faith to believe that and to live a life of faith. We don't want to be hypocrites. What we say we believe, we want to live out what we believe. So that our lives would be testimonies to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has the power to change people from blackened sinners to righteous, not in our own strength, but because of the blood of Christ. And help us to live this way. Boy, does our country need a revival. We need to see Christian people living out their faith and standing for the truth of God in a corrupt society that has all but forgotten God. The only time they think about God is when they're hurting. And then they think they use God. Lord, they use you like the candy man in the sky. But Lord, that's not what you're looking for. They need to repent. We all need to repent. And to trust you to change us, to make us like Jesus. In as much as we can be like Jesus. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you have given us that empowerment. You've not left us alone. You've sent your Holy Spirit into our lives. That Spirit works change to conform us to the image of Jesus. And we thank you for that. Helps to live in such a way that the world would see in us what the gospel can do. And we'll praise you for it. We have loved ones. We have friends that yet need to know Jesus as Savior. May we be that light to point them in that direction. For the glory of our God, we pray. And for our good. Amen. Thank you, folks. We're dismissed. Doing, huh? I'm sorry. Good. Glad to hear it. I woke up during